Take a seat, if you would, and take your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 25 to 27. We have one more, I promise, after this. And then we're going to be in the book of Joel. You see, part of the thing with this is that um, Paul, when he gets to the end and he gives his benediction, what he's really doing in this section is he's summarizing much of the teaching that he had. And so, in a sense, as I've been preaching through these last three verses, we've been doing a review of what Paul had to say. So this is going to be starting with verse 25 for a sermon I've entitled, The Obedience of Faith. And this is what it says. <coughs> now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scripture of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. To the only wise God... Through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. You know, the church in every age has had to deal with theological controversies, and one that arose in the late 1980s was known as the Lordship Salvation Debate. Now, although the um, roots go back farther, the issue came to the forefront when John MacArthur published a book entitled The Gospel According to Jesus. What prompted him to write the book was a Gallup poll that showed that one-third of Americans claimed to be born-again Christians. MacArthur stated that there's millions, actually millions of people in church who've deceived themselves into thinking that they're Christians when they, in fact, are not. He went on to charge that many are preaching what he called easy believism, a presentation of the gospel where people are asked to believe certain facts about Jesus, but they're not told that they need to repent of their sins and begin to follow Christ. Well, part of the reason this caused such a stir was that uh, MacArthur mentioned uh, proponents of this easy believism by name. People like Louis Sperry Chafer, the man who started a Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, Zane Hodges, a professor at that seminary. And Charles Ryrie, famous for the Ryrie Study Bible, many of which are owned by us. <laughs> there quickly came books, though, responding to MacArthur, um, his charge. Zane Hodges wrote one entitled, Absolutely Free, a Biblical Response to Lordship Theology. Charles Ryrie followed up with one entitled, So Great a Salvation. Both books charge MacArthur with twisting the gospel. By saying that a person has to repent of all their sins and commit themselves to obeying Christ, he was adding works to the gospel and thus denying salvation by faith alone. Well, over the next few years, a number of well-known evangelical leaders entered into this debate. On one side were people like John MacArthur, James Boyce, uh, John uh, Gerstner, and John Piper, and many others. On the other side were well-known evangelicals like Charles Ryrie, Zane Hodges, Charles Stanley, Chuck Swindoll, and Norm Geisler. Well, at the heart of the debate was this question. What is the nature of saving faith? Is it merely accepting certain facts about Jesus that he's the son of God, that he died on a cross, and that he rose three days later? Or is biblical faith of such a nature that it always and inevitably brings a change in lifestyle where one begins to obey Christ? Or to ask it another way, is it possible to have Jesus as your Savior, but not have him as your Lord? Now, certainly this is not a side issue for the church. I'm sure you can see what's involved in the debate. If the people who oppose what they call lordship theology are right, then men like John Piper and John MacArthur are indeed preaching a different gospel, which means they come under the curse that Paul pronounced in Galatians 1.9 on those who depart from the true gospel. On the other hand, if MacArthur and those who hold his view are right, these other men are giving false assurance to millions of people who are in fact not saved. 
Now this phrase, the obedience of faith, was used by Paul in the opening verses of this letter, and it's found here again as he closes out the epistle. And in verse 26, he tells us that the mystery of God has been made known with the result that it brings about the obedience of faith. So what we want to do today is we want to consider the relationship between faith and works and the role that each plays in our salvation. And then we want to zero in on that phrase, the obedience of faith. So why don't we join in prayer and ask God to help us think carefully and accept readily what's found in his word. So let's pray. Our Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy. This is a debate and it's still going on. I saw something just recently Uh, an article that uh, John uh, Piper did put out, and there were like 3,500 responses. And it's clear from those responses that I read that a lot of people don't understand this or the significance of it. So I pray a blessing for us as we consider this this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at a number of texts this morning. This is kind of a topical sermon. But I think we can arrange them under three broad headings. So the first one is simply this. The necessity of the obedience of faith or of obedience in the life of a Christian. The necessity of obedience in the life of a Christian. Secondly, the certainty of the obedience in the Christian life. And finally, the nature of this obedience in the Christian life. So the necessity of obedience in the Christian life. Now, both sides in this 1980s lordship salvation debate agreed on a number of truths. They agreed that anyone who is ever going to be saved will be saved by trusting Jesus' death as the payment for their sins. For those who trust in Jesus, God accepts his death in their place. On the cross, Jesus received the punishment that the believer deserves. Secondly, they both agreed that we're justified, that is declared righteous, not on the basis of the good works, our good works, but on the basis of Christ's good works. It's his perfect record of law-keeping, credited or imputed to our account the first moment that we believe, so that now we stand not in our own righteousness, but in that of Christ. So far, so good. Both sides in this debate would say amen, amen to these two foundational truths. Yes, yes, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. All evangelicals, Christians, agree that we're saved by grace through faith. But here's the question. What's the nature of the faith by which we're saved? Now, the Reformers said there were three components to genuine biblical faith. The first one was knowledge. The second one is agreement. And the third is trust. Knowledge, agreement, and trust. Now think about it. You have to have certain knowledge of facts before you can believe in Jesus. You have to know who he is, that he's the son of God who became a man. You have to believe that he lived a perfect life. You have to believe that he offered up that life as a sacrifice for sins. And that three days later, God raised him from the dead to show that that sacrifice was accepted. Secondly, though, you have to actually agree with it. I mean, Muslims and Jews know what the New Testament claims about Jesus, but they don't accept it. Muslims believe that Christians corrupted the New Testament. Jews believe that Christians simply fabricated the stories. They both reject the New Testament teaching that Jesus is God incarnate. But Jesus himself said, unless you believe that I am, meaning deity, you will die in your sins. And third element, though, is trust. You have to entrust yourself to him, commit yourself to Jesus. You have to... Count on him and follow him. Now, the illustration I always give for this one is the man Blondin. He was a tightrope walker in the early 1900s. 
He's famed for doing a number of things. But he, he, he would go across the tightrope, uh, and one time he put it across Niagara Falls. And he would put in a wheelbarrow, and he would take off the rubber part on the wheel, and so it's just the, uh, the rail, and he would go across with his little dog sitting inside of it. And so one time he came back from doing this, going across and coming back, he said, how many of you believe that I could wheel a person across here? And everybody raised their hand. And he said to one guy, hop in. Suppose he hopped in. Now you understand the difference. All of them had the facts. They had seen this guy go across it. All of them said they agreed that he could take someone across the wire. But when it came to actually trusting and committing themselves and getting into the wheelbarrow, they weren't going to do it. Well, that's what, uh, what uh, uh, MacArthur is arguing in his book, that a person who genuinely trusts in Jesus will show it through the commitment and obedience. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh-uh, says the other side. I mean, they say this. I said, look, when the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? What did he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He didn't say anything about repentance and surrender and obedience. I mean, it wasn't complicated. It was easy. Just believe. If you say that there's anything else that's necessary for when we accept Jesus, the truth about him, we're adding works to the gospel and that makes it another gospel. Now, the people who hold this view call themselves free, free grace believers. Free grace. And in one sense, obviously, they're right because all grace is free by definition. You can't earn grace. It's unmerited favor. So to talk about Christians needing to obey Jesus in order to be saved by Jesus, they say that destroys the very idea of grace. But then what do they do? What do they do with all the verses in the Bible that insist on Christians obeying Jesus? They say, well, you know, yes, Christians should obey Jesus. And if they do, they'll be blessed in this life and they'll get a greater reward in the next life. But it has nothing to do with actually being saved. I mean, some Christians are spiritual and they produce much fruit in their life. Other Christians are carnal and they produce little or no fruit. Lots of genuine believers have Jesus as their Savior, but they don't have him as their Lord. So yes, Christians should obey Christ, but it's not necessary for salvation. But I want you to listen to some of the words of Jesus himself. He said this in Matthew 5, 19 to 20. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But listen to what he says there. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus here is not talking about imputed righteousness, but our own keeping of the law. What he's saying is if you are not more moral than the moralist trying to earn you salvation... You're not going to enter the kingdom. Matthew 5, 27 to 30, he said this, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it would be better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown in hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. I mean, we live in a sex-obsessed culture. And any talk about uh, sexual purity is poo-pooed as puritanical. But doesn't Jesus sound like he thinks there's much at stake in the way we live our lives in this? I mean, Jesus rebuked people who claimed that he was their master and Lord, but they were unwilling to obey him. He said this in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and not do what I say. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. He said this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter. Many, get this, not few, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform mighty miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now notice these are people who claim that Jesus is their Lord. This is on Judgment Day. They even did mighty things in his name, but he rejects them because they practiced lawlessness. He went on to tell that parable that we know. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them will be compared to a man, a wise man, who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall. Now notice the difference is not between those who hear Jesus' words and those who don't, but those who hear Jesus' words and act upon them, and those who hear Jesus' words and don't act upon them. Well, how would the people who hold that free grace side position respond to the assertion that Jesus is clearly teaching here the necessity of obedience for his followers to be saved? Well, they'd try one of two tactics. They would say, first of all, either this. Yes, Jesus is saying that you have to do the will of the Father in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he's speaking of that millennial kingdom on earth after Jesus returns. He's not talking about going to heaven when you die. So yes, yes, you may miss out on inheriting that kingdom, but you still are saved even if you live in disobedience to him. But Jesus told Nicodemus that one enters the kingdom of heaven by being born again. And everyone who is born again enters that kingdom. If a professed believer is prohibited by Jesus from entering that kingdom, it has to be because they were never born again in the first place. They were never actually saved. Or they may say this, well, these commands and warnings are not given to believers in general, but to disciples. Just like the requirement of being a green beret is greater than for a regular soldier in the army. So the requirements for being a disciple of Christ are greater than being just a regular follower of Christ. I was taught that when I went to school. But the Gospels make no distinction between being a disciple and being a follower of Christ. A disciple is a learner, a student who follows around a religious leader. Remember, John the Baptist had his disciples. The Pharisees had their disciples. Five years after that first book, the Gospel According to Jesus, John MacArthur published another one entitled Faith Works, the Gospel According to the Apostles. In that book, he showed that the teaching of the need for obedience of faith is also found and taught by all the apostles. It always comes inevitably. Well, that brings us to our second point, though. The certainty of obedience in the Christian life. The certainty of obedience in the Christian life. Now, you've heard that phrase, the only two things that are certain in life are death and taxes. But you think about it, that's not actually even true, is it? I mean, who are the two people in the Bible who never died? Do you remember? I hope none of you said Jesus. <laughs> it was Enoch and Elijah. And uh, by the way, there's going to be a whole generation of believers when Jesus returns who won't experience death. Did you know that? In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, Paul writes this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning die, but we will all be changed in the moment in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And taxes? Erwin Schiff was the father of Peter Schiff, uh, 
He was a tax protester. Peter Schiff was an economist. His father was a tax pro, uh, protester, and he didn't think that taxes, income taxes, were constitutional, so he refused to pay them. He spent 13 years in prison for income tax evasion. He died behind bars at the age of 87. He didn't escape death, but he did escape paying taxes. You see, this is the heart of the debate. For those who hold the free grace position, uh, they say that a Christian should obey and we encourage them to obey, and they themselves say they obey. They're just simply saying that becoming a Christian doesn't actually guarantee that you'll obey. To put it in the words of Dave Hunt in his book, What Love Is This? He speaks for many in this position when he says this. There could be, listen carefully, there could be in the life of a particular person not one good work to indicate the reality of salvation, and yet that person could be truly saved and yet elected of God to the blessings he has planned for the redeemed of all ages. Now compare those words to the words of James in James 2, 14 to 20. What use is it, my brothers? If someone says that he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? I mean, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, uh, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you don't give them what they, it's necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well, but the demons believe also and shudder. But do you not realize or recognize this, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, this is so important that we get this in our minds correctly. A sinner is justified, meaning declared righteous by God, in his sight the moment he or she trusts in Jesus. When you finally recognize yourself to be a sinner rightfully under God's wrath, and you come under to understand that God has made a provision through Christ's death on the cross to pay for your sins, and that by faith you trust in that sacrifice as the payment for your sins, you are forgiven and pardoned at that very moment. At the very moment you believe, God credits Jesus' righteousness, his record of law-keeping, to your account so that he can accept you approved, not on the basis of your righteousness, but on the basis of his. As it says in Titus 3, Three to seven, for we also once were foolish, ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of our deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior." So that we're justified by his grace, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But here's the thing. Listen carefully. The same grace that forgives us, forgives our sins, begins to overcome our sins so that we start to live holy and pleasing lives to God. I mean, earlier in that same book of Titus, Paul explains, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And now, listen to the goal of what it's for instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, <clears throat> righteously, godly in the present age, looking forward to the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So here's the way I illustrate this. 
So you get this justification and sanctification right. Okay, you go out and you start up your car in the winter. What comes out of the tailpipe? Or for some of you people, out of underneath your engine compartment. It's the exhaust, right? We got a chemical engineer on it. Help us with this one. Now here's the thing. If that engine is running and the gas is burning, there has to be exhaust coming out somewhere, right? Okay, that exhaust is the good works of the Christian. The fire that's burning is the justification, the regeneration that's brought about by God. The one does nothing to to add to the other. And as a matter of fact, if you were to take a rubber hose and run your tailpipe back into the engine compartment, it would what? It would kill it. And in the same way, if you try to add something to the work of Christ for your justification, for your acceptance to God, you're going to kill it. And you're going to end up with a different gospel. But if that is smoke isn't coming out, the engine's not running. And if the engine's not running, if the, if, the, if the exhaust of good deeds is not coming out of the life of a Christian, it's because they're not actually saved. You see, the grace that God brings to us in salvation not only removes the penalty for our sin, but increasingly the power of sin over our lives. That's why he's redeemed us from every lawless deed to purify for himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. It's not just that Christians must obey, but by God's empowering grace, we actually do obey. Listen carefully, not perfectly, not consistently, but truly and increasingly, we obey him. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's given us a heart to love Jesus and want to obey him. I mean, isn't that exactly what the new covenant promise was in the Old Testament? God speaking in the nation of Israel said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man or any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Not just simply you should, you might, but you will. Now take your Bible and turn over to 1 John chapter 1. And start with verse 5. We can see this all in just one section. Now, now to, to deal with this thoroughly, I'd have to preach 10, 15 sermons, and I just, I, I really have to finish Romans next week. But I want you to see this just in John's writing. You can find this in Paul's, you can find this in Peter's, you can find it everywhere. <clears throat> Here's what it says. He's writing to people who were, a number of people have left their church. And they said, we're the true Christians. You ones who stayed behind with, with John and these other people, you're not the true Christians. We're more spiritual than you are. And they were all shook up, like, well, is is that us who missed something? And John's writing them to reassure them that they, who stick with the truth, are the true believers. And here he explains how this plays out in a person's life. He says this, This is the message that we've heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, meaning morally pure, holy, and in him there's no darkness at all. Now, if we say that we have fellowship with him, meaning God, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So the the idea of Christian perfection, that you can finally get to a point where you never sin again, it's not true. And if we say it, we're deceiving ourselves. 
He said, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. Listen to what he says. My, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. You shouldn't be sinning. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate, meaning a defense attorney, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation, not only for our sins, but those of the whole world. By this, now listen carefully, by this we know we've come to know him. How do we know that we actually know Jesus? Because we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, but doesn't keep his commandments? said he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner that he, meaning Jesus, walked. A born-again Christian can have Jesus as Savior but not Lord? He can claim to be in the light and yet walk in the darkness? He can say, I've come to know him, but yet not keep his commandments? The free grace people say that they're just carnal Christians, but still saved. John says, no, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. I've seen this in times in my life. Years ago, I was working at one of the restaurants where I was at, and there was a guy who was uh, in the Green Berets. He, he got a job as a cook there. His name was Bill, and Bill was a guy's guy. But somewhere along the line, I started to witness to him, and he said, you know, he said, when I was in the military, he said, uh, my life was at a low point one time, so I gave my life uh, to Jesus Christ. He's my personal Lord and Savior. The only thing is, Bill would come in hungover on Saturday morning when we're supposed to be working. He would talk trash with all the other cooks that were there. And when I confronted him, he reminded me again that he had invited Jesus into his heart. You know what, Bill? You're a liar, and the truth is not in you. Denise, I worked with her at another place. I had just become a Christian a few months before that. She had been a Christian, professed Christian a number of years. She was from a charismatic background. She asked me if I spoke in tongues. I said, I don't know what that means. She explained it to me, and I said, no, that's never happened to me. She said, well, you probably are not a Christian yet then. And yet Denise was living with her boyfriend in an immoral relationship. How can that be? It's because <clears throat> she was a liar, and the truth was not in her. Mickey Cohen a well-known New York gangster. Somewhere along the line, he got invited to a Billy Graham crusade, and he went. And that day when Billy Graham gave the gospel and he asked people to come out forward, Mickey Cohen got up and went forward. Wow, that became a story in the New York Times. Mickey Cohen, famed gangster, now a Christian. Met with Billy Graham a couple times. Later on, somebody asked him about it, and they said, well, Mickey, are you still a gangster? Well, yeah. What do you mean you're still a gangster? I thought you were a Christian. Well, I said, you know, there's Christian cowboys, there's Christian singers. Why can't there be a Christian gangster? No. But get what's going on here. His understanding was that he could be a Christian gangster. Now, here's my question. How many people are in churches today who are like those people I just mentioned? having no desire or determination to obey Christ, and yet they're still convinced they're Christians because they prayed a prayer, they had an experience, or they walked down an aisle. Paul told the Corinthians, test yourself and see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail the test? When I travel, my wife takes care of almost all the details. She purchases the plane tickets, rents the cars, books the hotels, Plans the itinerary. 
Just about the only thing I'm required to do is to pack my clothes and most importantly to make sure I have my passport with me. Well, one of the times when we were going overseas, I don't remember if it was Greece or Europe or somewhere, we checked in at the, well, with our luggage and then we went down to the gate and we're waiting for, to board the plane. Now, whenever I travel, I always make sure I have my passport in my front left pocket because I know that even though you've gone through, you can't board the plane until you show them the passport on an international flight. And so I check it, make sure it's there. You've got to wait a half hour, check it again, make sure it's there, check it again. And finally, they, they, they call out. They say, now boarding for flight 171 to Paris, rows 21 to 35. That's us. You got your passport? Yeah, I got it right. What? No, maybe it's in. Check your other pocket. No, it's not there. Look in your backpack. I didn't put it in my backpack. Well, where is it then? I don't know. Passengers are all boarding, plane, soon to leave. I'm looking around, the seat where I sit, and I can't find it. No idea where it is, but I've got to have it. Finally, I remember I went to the bathroom about 10 minutes ago. I walked in there, and on the third stall, I opened it up, and there was my passport laying on the floor. And so I walked back, and Suzanne said, did you find it? I said, yeah, of course I found it. And it was just, you know, it's right where I left it. Now listen carefully. Genuine faith in Christ is your passport to heaven. Are you absolutely certain you possess it? I'm going to say what Jesus said earlier again. This is so important. He didn't say a few people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. He said many people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Well, we have to say something about the nature of this obedience in the life of a Christian. Remember a few weeks ago I mentioned the interview that uh, the podcaster Ben Shapiro did with John MacArthur? At one point Shapiro said that, you know, sometimes he, he listens to Christian pastors preach and he thinks, you know, Judaism teaches the very same thing. Well, if Ben were listening to me right now, he might say something like this. Yeah, obey the commandments of God. I mean, that's what Judaism is all about, trying to keep God's commandments. I mean, we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, but we're still committed to keeping God's commandments, so the end result is really the same, right? No, not at all. You see, a sincere, committed Jew might seek to keep the commandments. He might be absolutely zealous in his attempt to do so, believing that his very salvation depends on it. But here's the problem. Unless you believe that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and trust in him for forgiveness, Ben's guilt will never be removed. It will remain, and the dominating power of sin in his life will not be broken. So try as he may, he will fail again and again, because only those who are redeemed by Christ know the reality of the words that we sing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the captive free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. It's only after our sins have been canceled that the captive can be set free. And that's what's at the bottom of this theological mistake that's made by those who hold the free grace position. They believe that God's grace has enough power to free us from the penalty of sin, but not necessarily enough to free us from the dominating power of sin. But the angel told Joseph that Mary will bear a son and she will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. 
Not just the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. And finally, ultimately, from the presence of sin. You see, unlike Jews or Roman Catholics or Greek Orthodox, and sadly even many Protestants, we obey not in order to achieve our salvation, but a result of the fact that we've already received salvation as a gift from God. We obey, but our obedience is the obedience of faith. You produce obedience in the same way that you got saved, by trusting Jesus alone. And I have to say, I've never written to him and told him this, but I have a personal debt to John MacArthur. Because shortly before he wrote that book, he was preaching a series and he was dealing with this issue and he was talking about hypocrisy in the church and the people who think they're Christians, but they're not as evidenced by the way they live. And as I sat out in my truck on lunch in high school in my senior year, and I listened to him, I thought to him myself, man, that's me. And that day I repented and gave my life to Jesus Christ. John MacArthur said that he believed that his main mission in his ministry was to be a missionary to the church, to people who thought they were saved, but not actually saved. We don't want people ending up in hell shocked because they thought they were going to heaven. Examine yourself, test yourself, and see. Do you love the things of the Lord? Do you love the Lord? And do you strive to keep his commandments? That's the evidence that we're Christians. Let's pray. Our Father and God, this is an ongoing debate. You know, some of the comments that I read on the recent article by John MacArthur on this, there were people who said, oh, I used to believe that lordship theology stuff, and oh, it just made me miserable. But now when I came to realize that I don't have to do any good works, I can just uh, agree with the facts. Now I sleep better at night, but that just means they're sleeping their way to hell. Lord, we produce fruit by staying close to Jesus. That's what he told us. This is the natural and the inevitable output of those who are connected to your son. So, Father, I pray that we would keep our focus correct, staying close to your son, that we might produce fruit that brings glory and honor to him. Bless us, Lord. Help us. And for those who are here who don't know you yet today, Lord, I pray today would be the day you open their hearts to the gospel. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <music>